Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. I think for so long I was just so happy that I didn't end up in prison, which like I don't think I was aware then was so close. Hmm. You know, now I'm like, oh man, there was like a few moments where I remember just kind of sitting there going like, the shit that's in this room right now is 20 to life. I need to get out of here. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Taxis cost money, food costs money, and rent costs money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Bitch! Now I ain't no killer, you understand me? I need to talk about more. You're the only man that's ever touched me. I'm Mahershala Ali, and for Anna Sale. And last year, I saw a movie that I loved. I loved it so much, I've watched it, like, three times, and it's called Blindspotting. It's set in Oakland, California. I'm originally from the Bay Area, and I think Blindspotting captures the Bay Area so well. The film is all about the messy intersection of race and class and rapid gentrification that's happening there right now. Bro, what the fuck is this green juice shit doing up in here? It's good for you. How much? Ten dollars. What?! What is this, the blood of fucking Jesus? The fuck is in it that it costs $10? Let me get one. I'm sorry, what? These are the two best friends at the center of this movie. Colin is the one who just bought the juice. He's a young black guy who recently got out of prison and absolutely doesn't want to go back. Miles is the one with the attitude. He's white, likes to wear a gold grill, and is always, always stirring up trouble. Their friendship is complicated. And I think it represents something I, I haven't really seen before on screen. The way in which races and people, culture, really naturally mixes and melds together in the Bay Area. To me, that's a, that's a result of, because the Bay is so eclectic, both in yeah. like the melting pot that it is, but also like the different, there's really sort of obscure backgrounds that people come from. This is Rafael Casal. He plays Miles, the, the white guy in Blind Spotting, and he co-wrote the movie too. Like me, he was also born and raised in the Bay Area. I think there we've developed this muscle to sort of really like take how somebody has given themselves to yeah. you and read that as fact. Right. Because we we really cherish authenticity in the Bay, right? Yes. So everyone really guards their authenticity with everything, which means it's out front, which also mm. means that that authenticity out front maybe is not packaged for easy consumption. Hmm. So we're also good at going, oh, you're a white dude, but you got that kind of Southern draw hmm. and that hard R. 
and you're like holding your jeans <laughs> and you've got, you know, and you're yes. tatted up, but you're not hipster tatted up. Right. I know who you are. Yes. You're like my boy Paco. Yes. He's like that too. He's yes. from East 14th, you know. Yes. That, that cultural meld is fascinating to watch. Raphael knows firsthand about that particular cultural melt. The actor, writer, poet, and rapper grew up in Berkeley in the 80s and 90s in a working-class neighborhood with parents of Irish and Spanish-Cuban heritage. He drew on that childhood of growing up white in a diverse neighborhood when writing his character Miles in Blindspotting. We always described him as a minority among minorities. Like, mm. that's mm. that's how he feels. He mm. feels like yeah. he's the minority. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. You know, which is which is at times how I felt growing up around my friends was like, right. but I'm the only dude who looks like me at this sideshow. Right. Like, I'm the odd man out. <laughs> yes. You know, like, I'm the I'm scared out of my fucking mind yes. right now. Yes, We're We're doing donuts and cars and everybody's looking at me to make sure I'm here with some people. Right. You know, yeah. that's my entire upbringing. Um. Let's talk a little bit about about you know growing up. You described yourself as as this sort of rebellious kind of knucklehead <laughs> to some degree, like growing up, who was sort of inclined to to a certain type of trouble. So you had have that aspect to you, but then on the other side, you're this poet, lyricist, thinker with a real activist vein to you like how do those two personalities exist in one person and when when do they sort of converge yeah still converging <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the the sort of younger years of being a just like a little street kid was i mean it was it was self defense entirely right it's like mm. offense is the best defense mm. i think i was small mm. like so super small kid and so I think you start you start puffing up and doing stuff yeah. to just like send out a a warning call mm. to everybody like you know you mm. might whip my ass but <laughs> mm. but I'm gonna get a hit in or right. or I'm not you know I'm not a pushover. So you're trying to preempt anything that you yeah you could I think deal with probably as had a result a, of what you were seeing happening. Yeah, people, and little yeah. things that had happened to me that I was like, oh, we're not gonna let that. We can't let that keep going. Like if that happens twice people see you get pushed around that way you gotta you know push back and berkeley high at the time was violent and scary for like an eighth grade little kid mm. going in you know i remember when you got to berkeley like my first day of berkeley high i remember like walking into like from back from lunch or something just saw like 20 bloods beat the shit out of some kids mm. from another school who came there to jump somebody and i just watched this and was like this is where I go to school, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I'm tiny yeah. and I'm looking at like my old skater friends who are like just folding over mm. and living in fear. Yeah. Um, and so I really found this misfit group of people throughout high school that were like, we just kept each other safe. Mm. And part of that safety was, you know, just doing what, what like young rebellious people do when they get a group of friends mm. that make them feel powerful for the mm. first time you know try to sort of find camaraderie in your shared discomfort yeah or or you know or, or whatever that is it sort of derails teenagers and for me i was also dropping out of high school like i was failing in class i'd always had an attention problem i'm sure i have chronic add as they've tried to prescribe me many times but like i just my parents are berkeley parents they're not putting me on pills mm. so 
And how were they reacting and responding to the trouble you were finding yourself in? Yeah. How were they trying to to sort of course correct you? It was, I mean, it got it got real bad in high school. I think that was, like my pops was sort of a, like a thug growing up in, mm-hmm. in Logan Heights in San Diego, right? Like mm-hmm. he's sort of from Vadio Logan. So he gets like, mm-hmm. you ride for your homies, you do your thing. This is a period that you go through in your life. So he was more concerned about like the extreme parts of the danger. He was more just like, am I just making sure that my kid isn't going so right. so hard that he can't come back from, he's not going to end up in prison. Mm-hmm. And so that was, the, that was the line. I felt like he was guarding more. I think my mother was like, you're creative and smart and you've always had like an overactive imagination. You can do anything if you can just kind of figure out your way through this. Around that time in his early teen years, Raphael saw the movie Slam, the Saul Williams film about a young man who ends up in the prison system but has a real talent for poetry. Snorting candy yams that free my body and soul and send me like Shazam. Never question who I am. God knows. And I know God. I remember sitting there just going like, I could do that. Mm. Like, I, I want to do that. I want to I wanna be able to say what I mean mm. like that. And my sister was pushing me to go to these poetry slams. And I went and did that for the first time. I did terribly. Mm. But it was this acknowledgement of intelligence and creativity, you know. And in class, I would see the kids who were good at math and history and science and mm. all that, you know. Mm. They, they had had so much help mm. and so much they were so Support. far ahead of everyone else and all my friends were kind of like we're lucky if we get out of here mm. you know let's just try to get through this shit but over here in this poetry slam i can excel because mm. it's new for everybody mm. and suddenly like we're sitting around at home writing and sharing each other's stuff and i was just so happy that there was a thing mm. that i was good at mm. Um, that pulled me out of the obscurity of just kind of feeling totally lost. Yeah. And the, the the sort of lost space was just me and friends sitting around like drinking and smoking mm. and not going to class and whatever. The drinking and smoking and not going to class led to Raphael getting expelled from high school as a sophomore. But his interest in poetry had sparked and he started competing in the local slam scene. He got really good. And at 18 years old, alongside people like Talib Kweli and Kanye West, he was invited to perform on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam in New York City. You did a piece on 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 abortion, yeah. extraordinary piece. Share with us a little bit about the, the the story behind that poem, what it was about. I I I never watched that one. Hmm. I don't know why. Hmm. It might just be too close to home. I wrote it because maybe a week before I got on the plane to go out there. My girlfriend at the time was like, I'm pregnant and I'm going to, while you're gone, I'm going to get this taken care of with my mother. I don't want you to come. Hmm. I don't like, I want you to go do that. So it's just the only thing I could think about, I think, is that I'm like a kid, you know. How conflicted were you about, about the choice she was making? I think it was just the absence of choice. Hmm. I, I think it was presented to me as a done deal. Hmm. And so then I was just sort of forced to just decide how I feel about it, even though it's inconsequential how I feel. Mm. Um, I had, ne- I, I think at the time I was trying to write things that I had never heard out of someone like me's mouth before. Mm. So I was like, well, what do I sort of, what do I have to offer in this moment? And I think I just ranted. Mm. I was like, this is, you know, 
This is how I feel about fatherhood, and this is how I feel about where my life is. Swimming backstrokes through bushes, petitions against what we, but ultimately what I am agreeing to do, but I can't be no father. Mother, make me your son again, cause I can't do it. Mom, tell her, please, tell her I'm too young for man's shoes. Son, daughter, sorry, but I am not ready for you. Then I came back. I first maybe I was just trying to be dramatic, but I like I didn't tell my parents what the poem was about. So wow. they they found out about it on TV. That was probably like we were probably still like navigating our distance too. You and you your know, parents. Me and my parents were probably okay. still navigating our. So you guys weren't close at that time. We were close, but like in in a. I mean, I guess we weren't. I guess high school really pulled us apart in a lot of ways. Mm. And we were really just trying not to be angry. Uh, because, you know, they, they didn't understand a lot of my choices of like, well, I'm just not going to fucking go to school anymore. And now I'm going to go get my car and I'm going to do poetry and like, <laughs> and I'm going to do rap music and that's going to be my life. But after a few years, that life started to lose its appeal. God, this can't be it. I don't want to be this, like, 40-year-old traveling poet person. Mm. This isn't... This was a stepping stone to something else. What is it? Coming up, Raphael finds a creative partner who helps him figure out what that it could be. This is Katie Bishop, producer for Death, Sex, and Money. Mahershala Ali first joined us on the show, along with his wife, the artist Amatus. They talked with our host, Anna Sale, about how they first met as college students and how they reconnected years later, after Amatus had lost several people in her life to gun violence. You can listen to their conversation by texting the name Mahershala to 70101. Mahershala and Amatus also talked about their shared Muslim faith, which includes abstaining from alcohol. And recently, we've heard from a lot of you who are abstaining from alcohol, and a lot who aren't, as part of our call-out about drinking. My relationship with alcohol can be a challenge to talk about. It's not a problem for me. I broke up with alcohol about two years and three months ago. I honestly don't want to drink that much anymore. It provides me some comfort and solace. This is what I need to go on dates. This is what I need to to have a great night out with my friends. There's still time to send in a voice memo about whether drinking is working for you or about how your alcohol use is changing. Record your thoughts and send them in to deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. We want to hear from lots of different types of people about this, so please, if you have something to say, send it in. Coming up next on Death, Sex, and Money... Sarah Smarsh, author of the book Heartland. The Kansas author talks with her father, Nick Smarsh, about the values of the world they both grew up in and how those values are changing. That was one thing that uh, was like ingrained into me is that we all have a cross to bear. So you pick up your cross and you carry it. Do you think you're different from your dad in how you look at the world? No. Are you different than me? No. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, 
propels us forward and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Mahershala Ali, in for Anna Sale. Rafael Casal co-wrote the movie Blind Spotting with his creative partner, David Diggs. We'll get to that story of how they connected in just a minute. But by 2014, a decade into their creative partnership, they'd done a lot together. Music, plays, YouTube series. They left the Bay Area and moved to Los Angeles. And they started co-writing the movie script that would go on to become Blindspotting. We kept almost making it and then money would fall through and we'd get a director attached and they would have to split off to make something else. And, you know, you, you just get that. That roller coaster yeah. is exhausting of sort of the universe dangling your dream in front of you. And then David got cast in a show called Hamilton Went to New York. Wait, first of all, <laughs> first of all, I got to say I got a quick little story. Um, I was in like, I was living in New York and I was there right before Hamilton came out. And I remember I was in like a Starbucks and there was this girl in front of me who looked like a theater girl, like a musical yeah, theater yeah. girl, you know. And she was just describing this musical or workshop she had just come back from. And she was like, yeah, it's all like, you know, historically accurate, but it's like they're rapping and like she's going on about it. And I thought to myself, I was like, that sounds terrible. Yeah. Like, what is she talking about? Yeah, yeah. And then a few months later... <laughs> This play hit. Yeah. I went to see it and I was like, this is genius. Yeah. But, uh, but also, what was your reaction but also, when David explained it to you? Same reaction he had. He was like, that sounds like a terrible idea, but I'll do it because Lynn and those guys were all his friends. To bring him to task. Somebody give me some dirt on his vacuous mask so we can at last unmask him. I'll pull the trigger on him. Someone load the gun and cock it. While we were all watching, he got Washington in his pocket. David went on to win a Tony and a Grammy for his roles in Hamilton. He also got cast in the ABC series Blackish. Basically, his career blew up. But that didn't mean the end of his partnership with Raphael. Okay, let's rewind for a second. Ten years earlier, back to 2004. Raphael was 19 years old, running a music studio in Oakland. David had just recently gotten back to the Bay Area after graduating from Brown University. And one night, he stopped by the studio. One of his friends was the older brother of one of my friends and was like, hey, Rafa's got a studio. They're looking for artists. You should go over there. And it was like, he sat down. We had a bunch of, like, goony motherfuckers in the studio. They all left. My guard came down. His guard came down. And we stayed there until 8 in the morning. We made, like, I don't know, six, seven songs. Then it was just like, oh, me and David do everything together. But you had met before that, though. You met, met in, him high in high school, school right? Yes. You just crossed paths. So he's it. four years older than me. So he yeah. was a senior and I was a freshman. So like I knew him and he was in the poetry scene. Yeah. He was like a very free spirit dude, like wore pajama pants every day. You know, like <laughs> he was like the, the like cool artsy kid. Okay. You know, and I think I was like the goony kid who like secretly was an artsy kid. Yeah. What did, once when, when you and, and, and David, sort of clicked up 
what did you find that you gave each other? I think then it was just like a lot of a lot of co-validation. Diggs was not only doing music, but he was in plays. I knew he came from poetry. He wanted to make weird music. Mm. And I was around some real just like hood dudes who mm. wanted to make like trap hood bass right. shit. And he was like, you know, let's stray over here. And uh, and then, you know, two months later, we're like writing a play together. And uh, I think we just realized that someone who can jump between mediums with you but knows you in all the other mediums mm. knows what you can do right. and can help you find the through line between them. Which is and also just, it's it's a rare gift to have that kind of friend that could sort of be a mirror and, and, oh, yeah. and validate you in, in so many different mediums where it's hard to find people that you just connect with on one of those things that you may do well let alone being somebody who has has do you have anybody like that um you know uh i've found for myself i've had to i i i didn't no not really my father was was in musical theater and he died before i started acting Hmm. but i was doing poetry at that time and performing Hmm. my poetry and did he get to see you do that? yes he did which which for me told me I wasn't crazy and and really helped me locate something in myself mm-hmm. but the but to like come across someone who who one perhaps gets what you do but also does what you do those are different things yeah. i have all my friends get what i do but none of them necessarily do what i do and and so to see what you and david as at together and individually have have accomplished is is really inspiring for me and just so timely and something that I've needed to see oh, as I, I have opportunity to move into doing doing branching out in a real way that reflects old talents or things that have that have haven't been nurtured right in yeah. a long time. But so I I'm just actually just speaking to uh how amazing that is that you two have found each other. We we talk about that shit all the time. Yeah. We're just like this is we're we got so lucky. Yeah. Um, but the constant now is like we remember being in a warehouse trying to record on a shitty mic and a shitty computer just to get an idea out Mm. so when now we're sitting there going like do we want to do this movie Mm. we just step back and we're like this is ridiculous Raphael and David are now working on a second movie together after the success of Blind Spotting. It even made Obama's list of best movies of the year. But Blind Spotting wasn't a Hollywood blockbuster. We put a movie out, and everyone back home mm. thinks I'm on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, that was an indie movie. Right. I lost money. Right. You no, know what I mean? and like, that's really hard to explain to people. Like when I'm like, I basically paid to do Moonlight. I paid essentially, to, yeah, like, yeah. Like between PR, what you get that. paid and what PR. <laughs> like, bruh, I, it was like a college project. You pay to do it in order f- for that to put you in a different place once you're done with that, right? Yeah. But economically, you're still poor. Yeah. You and David go back many years, and what's hard for you? for the two of you to talk about is there is there a space or, or subject matter anything that is challenging for you two to get get into i think we're both so hypersensitive to the other's 
comfort mm. that we found really good communication language to bring up things that are just super uncomfortable. Mm. Like when we get an offer and my number is so much lower than his, mm. how do we negotiate that? Mm. And we've, what we've created is he Knowing and I, how you both individually in a room contribute to something. Well, is that he, what yeah, like is? something that we're going to evenly work on. Yes. But the offer came in huge for him right. and nominal for me. Right. We just sort of discussed early on, like, hey, for stuff we're going to do together, let's just make it even. Yeah. We got this other project we're working on, and I was like, hey, man, I, I really just want my name first on this one because I, I didn't get it on the last one. Yeah. And I just think. A lot of people think like blind spotting was like you and then a little bit of me. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I did feel that people thought that. So we'll mm. just switch it. Mm. Like it's just, we just fix it. Yeah. Do you ever have a moment or any kind of fear of, of not having your own identity? Because of working so closely with David, who yeah. has a certain type of shine and attention on him as a result of a lot of work that he's put in. You yeah. Know? But. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was a thing that I think I prepped for hard when we were going to make the movie. Yeah. Um, but also, we have this phrase that we say together. We say, energy up, expectations down. Mm. That's been sort of the motto of our whole career is like, we're doing this out of sheer enthusiasm, but we don't really expect to get much. Mm. Um, and I think envy is a is a hell of a drug and it's very, very easy to get caught up in it. Yeah. I would hate it if somebody I was less close to but partnered with had an explosion and like made money and got all this fame that might stir me differently. I don't know that mm. I can withstand that with everyone. Yeah. But I think what people miss are all the years that Diggs propped me up, mm. you know, as the front man yeah. and was just there. And they don't know that, but I do. That's Raphael Casal. Look out for him in the upcoming movie, Bad Education, alongside Allison Janney and Hugh Jackman. And this summer, he'll be at the Public Theater in New York, teaching at the bars, verse, and theater workshop that he co-founded with his best friend, David Diggs. And if you haven't seen their movie, Blind Spotting, go see it. I can't recommend it enough. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Emily Nadal. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. And listen, I'm not big into podcasts, but this is one of the good ones. Make sure you subscribe. You can follow me, Mahershala Ali, on Instagram if you're bored. What scares you uh, about the next three to five years I, I just don't know what I'm doing. I say this thing all the time that I keep getting through another door and I keep thinking that the adults are in that room mm. and then I get in there and it's just me and my friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're like, oh, it's the next door. Right. All the grown-ups who know what they're doing are in that room. I'm Herschel Ali and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.